Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. And we are going to finish this chapter tonight, starting at verse 7 and going all the way down to verse 21. Now we've done this chapter in two weeks. It's a difficult chapter to divide because it all goes together. But it was important, I thought, to divide it for teaching purposes so that last week we could really hammer verse 6, which is so important for the entirety of Scripture, that Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. But then also, in this passage, God is establishing the Abrahamic covenant, which is a big deal. (laughs) So I thought it was important for us to take the time to go through it in two weeks. Tonight, we're going to see God formalize his promises that he's made to Abram in what we call the covenant. And you know by now that a covenant in Scripture is very significant. We looked at this in great detail when we studied Noah and the covenant God made with Noah when he left the ark. Well, now he's going to make a covenant with Abram. The formal establishment of the children of Abraham as God's chosen people. God had already chosen Abram. He'd already made the promises, but now it's, it's like you get it in writing, if you know what I mean. It's, it's formal. There's, there's no backing out of it now. Not that God would have backed out of it because his word is enough. And it's good for us to remember that all of this comes out of what we saw in the beginning of this chapter when Abram said, Lord, how am I supposed to know that what you said is true? I, I don't see how this is going to be possible. And so, there's a lot to be said for assurance of salvation in this passage. Because we often find ourselves in the same place as Abram, where we say, All right, God, I believe you. I know what your word says. And in my head, I've got it all nailed down. But when I look at the life around me, and when I take my heart into account, it's really tough. And how shall I know this, is is how Abram will put it. And the assurance that God gave to Abram is instructive for us because it's a parallel of the same assurance he gave to you and me. He established a covenant of his own initiative and with his own sacrifice. And there are a lot of different areas to discuss when it comes to the topic of assurance of salvation. It can be a very sticky topic. I'm not wading into any of that tonight. All I want us to remember as we go through this is that the foundation of our peace with God. The foundation of our trust is God's promise and God's covenant. That the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross made at God's own initiative is enough. And what God has done through Jesus Christ is all the assurance that we should ever need. Because God made a covenant with Abram, but he made, as the book of Hebrews puts it, a better covenant with us through his own son, Jesus. And there's nothing more assuring than that, is there? So let's start at verse 7, and we'll read down to verse 11. This is another one of those kind of strange passages that we've seen several of in the book of Genesis. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, very similar to the first six verses. And it's unclear based on the timing of the story if these verses come immediately after the first six or if it came later. It really doesn't matter. The reason we say that is because God told Abram to go number the stars, obviously nighttime. And then we're going to see as he prepares this sacrifice, the sun will start to go down. So either this is the next day, and that would make it a rather long encounter with the Lord, which is possible. Or it was separated from it in time, but the the two stories were so closely connected that they were recorded together. But in verse 7, God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. It's kind of a familiar formula there, but kind of changed from what we're used to. We're used to hearing, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of what? Egypt. That hasn't happened yet. So I like to draw out these parallels because there's, there's connection here. He's using what we often call the covenant name of God. 
You'll see in your Bible the word Lord is in all capitals, which means it is a translation of that Yahweh or Jehovah, however we want to vocalize that. The covenant name of God, the I am name of God. When Moses asked God, what is your name? In Exodus 3.14, the Lord said, I am who I am. That's the name that he's using here. Who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And this is significant because in this story, God's fitting to make a covenant, isn't he? So it's important that he uses the covenant name. Now in these previous verses, verses 1 through 6, Abram was seeking for confirmation and assurance concerning his descendants. Remember he said, I'm an old man, my wife's an old lady, and the only person that's going to get everything when I die is Eliezer of Damascus, this servant in my house. And the Lord told him, no way, it's going to be your own son. Well, now he's questioning the, not only questioning, he's, he's asking for assurance concerning the promised land. Now, God promised Abraham a couple things. He promised him material blessing. I'm going to bless you. Now, that has happened. Abram is a rich man at this point. He promised him descendants, and Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's going to be what we deal with for the rest of this story. But now he's, he's asking about the truth of the promised land. God said, come out of the land of your fathers. I'll take you to a new land. And right now, Abram is what we call a sojourner. Remember, we discussed that word Hebrew really means a, a pilgrim or a traveler. And he's sojourning in a place called Mamre, but he doesn't own anything. He just lives there. He, he didn't build cities. He built tents, or he raised tents, I should say. And God said, I brought you out of the land of Ur. And Abram goes, yeah, and I'm in the land, but I don't possess the land. And you said I'd possess it. You ever feel that way when you say, oh, Lord, how am I to know? You read a promise of scripture, you read something the word says, and you believe it, but you go, God, how can I know? Well, even Abram said that, so don't be so hard on yourself when you have those questions. Now, we've said several times, and we made this point early on in Abram's story, that sometimes the reason we don't receive God's promises is because there's a problem with us. You know, Abram went halfway. Abram still brought Lot with him. Abram left before he should have. These were problems that Abram had that prevented him from receiving the promise. But in this story, that's not the case. So it's important for us to know that each situation is different. And we can ask this question too. What about when not only are we being obedient, but the promise is something that we can't even see? We talk about salvation, forgiveness of sins. You can't see that. You know, there's no halo that comes around your head as soon as you get saved so that you know that you've been saved. It's something you can't see. Heaven, obviously. There have been people, especially in the Bible, those are the most reliable ones, who claim to have seen a vision of the Lord in heaven. Now, that's cool and that's reliable, but still, it's like, well, I haven't seen it. You know, and I've found that even when we do have remarkable experiences like that, it still doesn't solve those questions. So wh where do we get assurance from something that we cannot see? As Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is really leaning into the invisible nature of our faith. We believe in a person that we have never seen. We are taking by faith the testimony of people we've never met. Now, we have good reasons for believing them, but there's still a major element of faith here. That's why we call it the Christian faith. And we know to accept those things that way, and we do. We, we believe God, and he counts it to us as righteousness, but that doesn't make it any less difficult as you walk through your day-to-day -day life, does it? It still makes it hard. Abram believed God, but he still had to wake up every morning in a land that wasn't his. He was still sleeping in a tent. And so he asked the Lord, how am I to know? Now, when we question God, there are two ways to ask a question of God. Normally, we hear questioning God, and we think of Jesus in the wilderness with Satan, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, right? But there are some people like Abram here who asked questions of God and got answers, and there are other people that asked questions of God and got rebuked for it. So you could call this the, the Zacharias way to ask God a question and the Mary way to ask a question. This is in the book of Luke, chapter 1. We see Zacharias, who is an old man. He's one of the priests in the temple, and he has a vision of an angel telling him that he and his old wife are going to have a child. 
Same thing with Mary, who, of course, was a virgin at the time. And she was told by an angel, you're going to have a child. And both of them asked a question. Zacharias got struck deaf and dumb. <laughs> Mary got an answer to her question. What's the difference? Zacharias in Luke 1.18 said, how shall I know this? Mary said in Luke 1.34, how will this be? Because Zacharias asked the question with a defiant attitude, as in, I'll believe it when I see it. The angel says, you're going to have a child. Uh, okay, you want to explain that one to me? You might have come from the presence of God, but listen, I've seen lots of old people and they don't have kids. So go ahead and explain it to me. And then Gabriel says, I've come from the presence of God and you're going to be deaf and dumb until you get your child. Now Mary says, how will this be since I do not know a man? You can picture Mary asking this question in a humble way saying, okay, I believe you. However, I don't really understand this. It doesn't make sense. This is the point we need to learn from this. God does not answer angry, arrogant questions. And if you are asking questions of God in an angry, arrogant way, you should not expect an answer from the Lord. You might say, well, I wasn't angry. I wasn't arrogant. Maybe not outwardly. But what's the posture of your heart? Is it one of those, I've got him now. I'm right and God's wrong and I demand an explanation. You might wrap it in a whole bunch of pious language, but God sees the heart. But those who ask in humility and honesty, they will be answered. Somebody who honestly wants to know and comes before God humbly, knowing that God knows more than you, knowing that God knows better than you, but just desiring to understand, they're going to get answers to the questions. Now, this does not always make the answers to the questions easy to accept. The book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, is the classic book in the Bible about asking questions from God. Because first Habakkuk asked God, how can you let my nation live in such wickedness and not do anything about it? And God says, don't worry, I'm sending the Chaldeans to destroy your nation. And Habakkuk says, Lord, they're worse than we are. How are you going to send people that are worse than we are to judge us? But Habakkuk accepts that from the Lord and he says, okay, I'm going to listen for your answer, Lord. And God answers basically by saying, I know what's best and you don't. And don't worry, they're going to get theirs later. But Habakkuk was able to accept the answer when it came. So we can assume that Abram here is asking this question out of heartache, out of desperation, but also out of faith. Not because he doubts that God can do this. He just doesn't get it. And we know that Abram asked with the right attitude because God is going to condescend to him. He's going to show him grace and he's going to confirm the promise with a covenant. So here's something you've maybe never been asked to do. He says, go get a heifer, a goat, and a ram, three years old each, and a turtle dove and a pigeon, and you're going to make a sacrifice here. And Abram cuts each one in half and puts them on opposite sides. We can assume there were altars here. So he Cuts the heifer in half, one half over here, one half over there. Cuts the goat in half, one half over there, one half over there, the ram. And then he says he doesn't cut the bird, so one bird goes on this side, one bird goes on that side. And we see that and we say, how barbaric. <laughs> but this was a very common way back in the day where people made formal agreements. We do everything on paper for now. Who knows what the digital age is going to do, but... We do it on paper. That's how you know that it's legit. Well, this was how they did it. There's a countless examples of this from the history of the time where they would cut the animals in half and then one party would pass through or both parties would pass through. The idea is by walking through this, this scene of carnage here, if I don't do what I'm promising to do, may it be done to me what was done to these animals here. So you can see the severity of this. And this is why, if you want to translate it literally, when the Lord says he made a covenant, literally the word there is God cut a covenant. It's the Hebrew word karath, which means to cut, which makes an awful lot of sense when you understand the process of making a covenant. We say it similarly. We say, I'm going to cut a deal, which probably goes more back to dealing cards, I would imagine, and cutting the deck, but it's the same idea. They would cut a covenant. And the, the best example you can see of this is in Jeremiah 34, and this is addressing 
uh, an issue in the land at the time because every seven years they were supposed to release all slaves, indentured servants, anybody that had gone into servitude in order to pay off debts. They were supposed to be released every seven years. They hadn't been doing this. So there was a, a revival at some point where the people said, hey, we got to let these people go. And they did, but then they went and re-enslaved them all again. So once the, once the high of the revival wore off, everybody went right back to their sin. So this is what the Lord says to those people, and you can hear how he's referring to this process. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. Do you see this? And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So, in that passage, the Lord is saying, you all reneged on what I had commanded you to do, and you committed an even greater sin by re-enslaving these people. So I'm going to rip you to pieces. I'm going to make you like that calf that you cut in half. Very vivid picture here. So God is telling Abram, in a sense, to set up the notary. We're going to do something official. We're going to do something binding by the terms of the time. Now we say, well, what, what's the, the confirmation of that? How are you going to ever go back and say and prove that this happened if you don't have the paper? Well, first of all, we're dealing with God. But second of all, the people actually believed that there were, they were putting a curse upon themselves, that I'm cursed if I break this covenant. It was a big deal. So this is the way they did it. And I want you to take a second and think about this because it, it just says that he cut them in half. But Abram has to take a three-year-old heifer three-year-old young cow, and cut it in half. He's sitting there with a knife, with a blade of some kind, cutting this cow in half. And then he's got to drag it over here and drag half over there. And then he's got to take a goat and do the same thing. And he's got to take a ram and do the same thing. This is a bloody scene. Abram would have been drenched with the blood of these animals by the time it was over. There would have been a smell. There would have been flies. We see in verse 11 that birds of prey are coming down on the carcasses. The buzzards are circling, and he's got to wave them away. And I think that's a pretty cool picture there, too. I, I'm not going to preach on it, but, you know, a lot of times when the Lord says, we're going we're gonna to do something, you get ready, and then what do we have to do? We wait. We wait for the Lord, and you could say that the, the vultures and the buzzards of doubt and fear and anger, you got to keep those away. But that's a cool thing to preach on maybe another time. So he says, you get it ready, we're going to make a deal. And Abram goes through this visceral process, and he's waiting. Now, the next step would have been for one or both of the parties to walk between these animals and therefore, so to speak, put the curse upon themselves to make sure that they do it. But something else happens before that can happen. Let's read verse 12. As the sun was going down... So as I said, either the next day or a different day entirely. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So time passes. Abram has finished his grisly work here, and he's waiting. Dusk comes, and it says in verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. This is a, an interesting little word here. In Hebrew, this is Tardema. This is not the normal word that is used for sleep. Deep sleep is one word, so there's not an adjective that says deep and then a noun that says sleep. It's all one. But it can also be, if you like, translated trance. Because every time this word is used, it refers to something spiritual. Usually it's referring to dreams or God sending a deep sleep. Adam, in Genesis 2.21, when God sent him into a Tardema and took the rib from his side and made Eve. 
We see this in 1 Samuel 26, 12, when David sneaks into the camp of Saul, and Saul doesn't wake up because it says God had sent a tardimah upon him. And we see this referred to many times in Isaiah, especially chapter 29, verse 10, where he says, I have sent a tardimah upon the prophets and seers so that they're not hearing from me. It's a deep sleep of confusion. So this is more significant than just he fell asleep. This is similar to what Paul says when he was in the temple and he fell into a trance, or Peter who was on the housetop and he saw the vision of the sheet coming down. So it usually refers to a prophetic experience or a dream. And I love the way the old King James translates the second half of verse 12. The ESV says, Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The KJV says, Lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. There we go. That gets the sense of this here. So he's having a deep sleep, but in his sleep he's in a place of great, terrible darkness, a fearful place. Now where is he? He's in the presence of God. He is encountering the living God, and he's terrified. That's why the Lord had to tell him earlier not to be afraid, right? The presence of God. Now he said, no, hold on. The presence of God is full of light, and it's shiny, and I've seen the movies, and it's white, and there's clouds everywhere, and everyone's got the halos. Psalm 97.2 says the Lord dwells in thick darkness. What is the point there? He's shrouded. He's inapproachable. You can't look upon the Lord. Think of the most hot, burning, blazing, smoking fire you can. There's, there's brightness there, but there's also darkness as the smoke and the fire. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, describing the Lord, it says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So Abram catches a glimpse of God in his presence and power, but he doesn't see him. This is important. We cannot look upon God and live. So God shrouds himself, but Abram knows where he is. And it's a fearful thing. And this memory is going to stick with him as a reminder of who he's dealing with. <laughs> Never again is he going to go, is God able to do this? He's going to remember back to the time he was in the presence of God and say, yeah, God can do this. And out of that darkness, the Lord tells him to what? Know for certain. This calls back to what Abram said in verse 8. How am I to know? Well, the Lord says, know for certain. He's assuring him. The full, as it said in Maybe older translations, the terror of the presence of God. Great and terrible is the Lord Almighty. This is not terrible in terms of evil and morality, like Ivan the terrible, you know. But it's the terror. It is a terrible thing to be in the presence of God because it's the Lord. And I want to make a quick note here. There's so many application points in this passage. I'm going to have to go through some of them quickly, but... Experiences of the presence of God, similar to this one, there are times where we as Christians will have encounters with God like this. And I want to affirm for some of you, those things are scriptural and they are beneficial for your life. I can think of several times in my life where I have just been so aware of the presence of God. Maybe not to the extent that Abram was here. I don't know that I could ever say I've been in a tardama the way he was. But I've been in worship services. There's one I can think of when I was in high school and had a, a group of knucklehead friends and we were all in this worship service at a summer camp and I remember being so overwhelmed with the love of God that I broke down weeping, which is something I would never have done and still don't much care to do. But I, I came out of that and talking to the guys after the service was over, even though we all had similar experiences, I could tell this was different for me than it was for them because this is going to be a moment for these guys. This is life-changing for me. I remember when I was praying about whether or not I should go to seminary, which is a big life decision, especially for someone who was just married and we were beginning to have children. And I was in our first apartment. I remember just where I was. I was praying, and it was very similar to this. There was just a, a heaviness. I can't describe it to you where I, I knew that God was there, and I very clearly, distinctly heard what I was supposed to do which was to go to seminary. And I needed to hear that because I had a lot of arrogance about people that went to Bible college that God needed to break me of. Before we came out here to Alabama, I had a dream that if I were to explain it to you, you'd sit here and think that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. It wouldn't make a lick of sense to any of you. But I knew exactly what it meant. 
and it was the Lord speaking. So God deals individually with his people. And there are times, especially in prayer, especially during worship, sometimes it comes out of nowhere and you're just there with the Lord when he's trying to speak. Those things are, are good. You don't, don't be afraid of times like that. I will also add, we should never manufacture times like this. Like we're some kind of witch doctor and we're going to beat the drums and holler until now I'm excited enough where it feels like I'm meeting God. Nothing wrong with being excited, but when you're doing that in order to make something happen, that, that's not good. But nor should we despise moments like that. We're just like, I, I don't know what to tell you. God was speaking to me. We believe that. That is biblical and that's not the kind of thing we want to look down upon. Now, in Abram's experience here with God, not only does God say, no, for certain, your descendants will possess the land. So he's kind of saying, it's me, Abram. That's how you know. He tells him how it's going to happen. He gives him a prophetic revelation about what's going to happen for hundreds of years into the future. And this is the first hint we get in Scripture that Israel was going to be enslaved in the land of Egypt. He says they will be enslaved in a land that is not theirs. Doesn't tell them which one, but we know from Later on, this was, of course, Egypt. And he says they will be there for 400 years, which is a round number because we know from Exodus 12, verse 40, that this was 430 years. And down there in verse 16, he says for four generations. It, it's sort of nitpicking to say, well, he said 400 and it was 430. It's like, yeah, that's, that is what he said. And some people want to try and do tricky things with the dating of this time, and that's fine, but I don't really see a, a conflict here. You could see the Lord saying about 400 years. But I will say this, when he says a generation in verse 16, the fourth generation, so he says 400 years, and then he says the fourth generation, which would equate a generation, a door is the Hebrew word, with 100 years. Now later on, there's another passage in Psalms where Moses, who is the author of that psalm, is going to write that a generation is 60, 70, maybe 80 years. The point is, they're not a standard unit of measurement. <laughs> you know, you can't say a generation like you can say a decade. And the reason I bring that up, there is a very weird doctrinal thing floating around right now that is trying to predict the date of the rapture based on the generation that saw Israel come in, into its own as a nation. I'm trying to draw the point, the Bible does not have a standard definition of what a generation is, and Jesus already told us no one knows the day or the hour. But just wanted to hang a little flag on that because it is important to have textual answers to those things. But he says they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years, and he says, but I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt with great material possessions. When we get to the book of Exodus, they're going to be calling out for the Lord to deliver them. They're holding on to that promise. There have been several great adaptations that really play that up in a great way. This is that promise that they're holding on to, that God would deliver them out of that. A lot of interesting parallels here between Israel and Abraham, between Father Abraham and his descendants. And I'll look at three here. You remember that in Genesis 13, Abram went to Egypt because of a famine. And then we're going to see at the end of this book, Israel and his children are going to go to Egypt because of a famine. And Joseph is going to take care of them. We know that Abram was trapped by Pharaoh because Pharaoh had his wife and he couldn't go anywhere. Israel, of course, was enslaved by Pharaoh for hundreds of years. But Abram left with great riches. And so did Israel. Remember the plundering of the Egyptians. They said, everyone, ask your neighbor if he's got anything for the journey. And they said that everybody basically gave them 430 years worth of wages for all the work they had done. And it says, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. Very interesting, these parallels here, how the history of one biblical figure will foretell what happens in the next one. Jesus has tons of these parallels between lots of different figures. It's called typology. And there are some that want to run away with it, but it is legitimate and it is biblical. So good to hang a flag on it when we see it. But he says, as for you, Abram, you're going to perish in this land in peace in a good old age. So he's not going to live to see any of this. The promise is going to be received by his children. Very similar to the promises of Jesus' return. I really hope it happens in my life, but if not, it's going to happen to my children. And I want to look at verse 16 here too. As I've said, so much to draw out of this passage. Why is he going to delay it for 400 years? He says it right there in verse 16. 
and you should underline this because this is a huge point theologically and also it's a great apologetics point. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says, I'm not going to give them the land yet because the Amorites, which were the people that lived in Canaan at the time, their sin has not grown so great that I have to judge them and drive them out of the land. This is very significant to us because the Lord says, I'm not going to drive out the inhabitants because their judgment is not justified yet. It would be unfair for me to kick them out of their land at this point. So I'm going to delay the fulfillment of the promise to give the Amorites space to repent of their wickedness. I cannot emphasize this enough. God delayed the promise because he knew that the promise would mean the eradication of the Amorites. And he says, I'm going to give them more time. That is the mercy of God. You know, sometimes as Christians, we get so judgmental about sin. And I mean legitimate sin now. I'm not talking about things that are really not such a big deal. They just make us mad. Real sin. We look at folks engaging in real sin, and we get so mad, and we say, come on, Lord, smite them. You know, we're like the sons of thunder. Lord, call down fire from heaven upon those people. And you read the stories in the news, and you hear what's happening from the missions organizations. Lord, how can you allow this? Well, you know, the Lord is great in mercy. He goes, I see it. I see what's going on. But I'm going to give them a chance. Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God's like, I, I don't like judging people. <laughs> I don't like sending fire from heaven. I don't like having to bring justice. I'd rather show mercy. Same thing with my kids. I didn't believe what my parents told me, and I'm sure my kids don't believe me either. When I say, I don't like getting you in trouble. They're like, yeah, right. It's your favorite thing in the whole world. That's how we get with God sometimes, isn't it? Like, Lord, you love judging people. He's like, I, no, I don't. I'd rather you turn from your way and live. We get like Jonah, though. You're going to give them a second chance? Don't you know what they did to my people? Yeah, but there's a lot of people there, Jonah. I love them all. We see wickedness as a block, usually. The, those wicked people, fill in the blank, whatever ites, you know, you're upset with. But the Lord sees the individual hearts and the individual families. He sees the shading within that group. That there are, yes, there might be a ton of people that are very wicked, but there might be some who could still be saved, who could still be tipping one way or the other. There are those that don't approve of that. God sees all those things. And his desire is not for them to be destroyed, but for them to repent and be saved. Why do you think God has delayed his return for 2,000 years? He's waiting for people to get saved. Now, the Amorites were wicked people. We'll read about them being involved in witchcraft, child sacrifice, sexual immorality. We've already talked about the Anakim and the Rephaim. There was Congress with demons going on among these people. But God was patient with them for centuries, hundreds of years, while his people languished in slavery. And while it might have seemed unjust, and in a way it was unjust, Pharaoh should not have done that to those people. But the Lord was showing mercy to somebody else by allowing that injustice to continue. So while the Hebrew slave building the monuments to Pharaoh was sitting there saying, God, don't you see us? God said, yes, I see you, but I also see them. I'll take care of you. I'm enough for you. These people don't even have me yet. So people who want to raise their moral indignation at the Bible because God judged the Amorites, I believe it was Richard Dawkins refused to debate William Lane Craig, because William Lane Craig believes the Bible, and that means he believes that the, the conquest narratives of Joshua were morally justified. And I just can't be in the same platform as somebody who believes in genocide. But what he fails to recognize is that God gave them room to repent and only destroyed them when there was no turning back. That's how God does it. God is merciful. He's, he's usually more merciful than we'd like him to be. Come on, God. They think they're getting away with it. And you know what? Even then, when they get to the land of Canaan, the first Canaanite we meet is a woman named Rahab, who is also a prostitute, and she and her whole family get spared. So there's something significant about that. 
And then in the next chapter, we see that there is an Israelite named Achan. Him and his whole family get destroyed for their sin. So th this is not some weird racial or national thing. This is God showing justice and mercy to these people. Derek Kidner said this. He's a commentator, and I like the way he put it. This verse here that we're reading throws significant light on Joshua's invasion as an act of justice, not aggression. Until it was right to invade, God's people needed to wait, even though it cost them centuries of hardship. This is one of the pivotal sayings of the Old Testament. Now, of course, by the time Israel is released from slavery, the wickedness of the Amorites is beyond repair, and God sends them in. But the principle here is so important. Not yet, Abraham. They don't deserve that yet. That's so important. So the next time you're wondering about God's judgment of our nation or any other nation, you just remember how far God is willing to let a nation go before he judges them. God's more merciful than you. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad God's more merciful than you? Or you look back on how you used to be and the things you asked God to do. Now, I'm so glad God didn't listen to me. <laughs> So to tie it back, Abram desires assurance of the promise of land, specifically the land promise. So God gives him a vision. He reveals his presence and foretells the future to Abram, telling him, no for certain. But it gets even better than that. Let's look at verse 17 down to verse 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Hard to overstate the importance of that section here. Well, time continues to pass. Sun has gone down, so this is either... The night after he was told to number the stars, or another night entirely, but they're still connected. And Abram sees, probably as he's coming out of that deep sleep, out of that tardima, he sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch go between the sacrifices. Now that fire pot is a Hebrew word, tanur. It can also be translated oven. It was a clay round oven that was used to make the unleavened bread and to make other things. And there were either stationary on the ground, or sometimes they were mobile, you could carry them. And of course, you all know what a flaming torch is. And he sees those things go between the sacrifice that Abram had made, between the, the heifer and the ram and the, the pigeon and the turtle dove and all that that he had cut into pieces. This is symbolic of God's presence going between. Abram is not the one going between the sacrifice. It is the Lord doing that. I think there's a parallel here between the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You've got the smoking fire pot and you've got the flaming torch, the Shekinah glory of God passing between here. This is astonishing. And we're used to this, but we have to hear this. Abram should have been the one to go between because Abram is the lesser and the Lord is the greater. God is going to put himself under an obligation to do something for a man? That doesn't sound right, does it? But that's exactly what God did. He even put Abram out for a while so that Abram would be too tired to complete the ceremony. God's like, I will do this. He placed himself, so to speak, under the curse of the covenant. The burden is upon God to accomplish the terms of the covenant. How do you think Abram felt seeing that? He's like, wait a minute, that was supposed to be me doing that. And the Lord's like, no, I'm the one making the covenant. This is another step in what we've called the progress of the promise. We've seen as Abram's life has continued, it's become more and more sharpened and formal. In Genesis 12, we saw that initial call, leave your family, go to a new land, I'll bless you. Genesis 13, when he separated from Lot, that's when the Lord said, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and I'm going to give them this land. Last week, we saw that his faith was counted as righteousness, very significant. And then this week, we're seeing the formal establishment of the covenant. Now, in our terms, it's on paper. Now it's a notarized document. Hands have been shaken. There have been witnesses. There has been a formal legal agreement made. This is a very significant thing. By the terms of the day, God now has a contract 
with Abram. This is the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant, an everlasting agreement that God made with Abram, and by extension, Abram's children, the nation of Israel, to bless them forever. That means that all of those promises God made to Abram, material possessions, many descendants, the promised land itself, the eventual seed through which all the world will be blessed, all of those promises are now tied to this covenant. And those who are under that covenant benefit from those promises. And you see throughout the Old Testament that there is commemoration and celebration of this covenant. And rightly so. This is what makes Israel so special. This is, you could say, legally, when they became God's chosen people. Because God picked Abram out of everybody else. And this process will continue until we get to Moses. But this is what secured their future destiny. A great example of this is in Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11. This was a song they would sing. He, the Lord, remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abram. His sworn promises to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Very important. He remembers his covenant forever, for a thousand generations, an everlasting covenant. We might say forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> now later on, the Lord is going to add to Israel the Mosaic covenant, which is to govern their behavior and to prefigure Christ as they're in the land. He's going to make a covenant with David where he's going to establish the kingdom, the eternal dynasty, the son of David. This one right here is specifically related to the land, because this is what Abram's been asking about, is the promised land. And the Lord gives him the boundaries of the land here. He says, from the river of Egypt, which of course is the Nile River, to the Euphrates River, the great river. This is an enormous stretch of territory. Now what some people have tried to say, and I don't think that they're entirely without grounds here, as they'll say that word for Nile River or the river of Egypt uh, is not referring to the Nile itself, but it's referring to, I forget the name of it, but it's, it's a wadi that comes up from the Red Sea in between the formal land of Egypt and what would become the, the Sinai Desert. Of course, the problem with that is it doesn't say wadi, it says river. The word for wadi, which is a valley that fills up with water during the rainy season, is nahar in Hebrew, but the Lord uses the word nahal. And I think people try to figure out, is it maybe a little bit closer? Because that's huge. Look at all that. <laughs> From one to the other. Now, it doesn't give us a north and south distinction, but that's okay. He gives them a list of the nations that they're going to drive out. But the exact boundaries of this territory have been disputed, as you can imagine. And it's a fun discussion to have. Zach and I were talking about it for a while this afternoon. And the other question to ask is, has Israel ever fully realized the land promises that God gave to Abram. Now, I've always been raised and taught that, no, they did not receive all of that land yet, and we're still waiting for that land to be given to them. But I do want to make the point that in 1 Kings 4.21, it says that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the borders of Egypt. Now, that would seem to describe what the Lord said to Abraham. So it could be that that was the fulfillment of what God had promised them. Of course, when Solomon's son became king, he blew it and the land broke in half and then they immediately lost all of these vassal nations that were sending them tribute. And the question becomes now, was this the fulfillment? Because while it does say they were there, it could be that they weren't inhabiting all that land. They were, that was their sphere of influence, so to speak. Sort of how the United States has protectorates. We have Guam, we have Puerto Rico, places like that, formerly the Philippines. That it's not really the USA, but you know, that's, that's still our territory, so to speak. It's not really the same thing. That could be. I think that's entirely possible. But some people want to say, no, no, see, they already got it, and then they blew it, so that's the end of it. That I absolutely do not agree with. Because we see in Ezekiel 47 and 48, and other chapters too, that God says, someday I'm going to restore those boundaries to you that you had under David and Solomon, and I'm going to expand them even farther. 
Now, Ezekiel wrote from where? Babylon. So they had already been exiled. So that prophecy remains to be seen. So the reason I draw this out is because what a lot of folks will say, and I have said before too, and I still think may be the case, that Israel never received all that land. Therefore, we're still waiting for the Lord to return and give them all the land that he promised. Some people will then come back and say, well, what about 1 Kings 4.21? It says that Solomon had it from one river to the other. All this tells me is that whether or not they ever had it is not the issue. What is the issue is what did we see in Psalm 105? How long is this covenant to last? Forever and ever and ever and ever. So whether or not they ever got it is less important than is this still in effect? And it is because it's an everlasting covenant. And we know it's an everlasting covenant because Ezekiel wrote from Babylon saying someday those boundaries are going to stretch not only to where they were but even farther than that. And that we know for a fact has never happened. There is still a contract in heaven between God and Israel, an everlasting covenant that that land is theirs. And someday we believe it will absolutely be paid in full, just like all of God's promises. And then we say, well, I just, I just don't know. It's been throughout church history when there was no nation of Israel. Like, I just, it doesn't seem likely. It doesn't seem possible. Very similar to Abraham in this chapter in a lot of ways. But do you know what it says in Jeremiah 33? Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. God says, when I make a covenant, you can't break it. I say, well, hold on, though, but, but Israel sinned, and Israel fell away from the Lord, and they were sent into exile. But who went between the animals? It wasn't Abraham. It was the Lord himself. The one who is responsible to fulfill that covenant is the Lord. So you can't say, well, they blew it. It was never dependent upon them. It was dependent upon God. Paul found it unthinkable that God would give up his covenant with Israel. Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, So has God forgotten or abandoned his people that he foreknew? And he says, God forbid. This in Greek is megenoita. It's the same thing he said when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Megenoita. God forbid. What are you, nuts? Has God abandoned his nation Israel? No, of course not. There is a cosmic contract. Will the church fulfill those promises? No, that's not what it says. The church is mainly composed of Gentiles. These are those nations that have been blessed through the seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Nations is goyim, translated Gentiles. All the Gentiles of the world shall be blessed through Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are bound up in the person of Jesus. And it's all going to be brought to a head at the, at the same time. You know, there's a, there's a principle of writing stories that they say, if you have four or five different plot lines, you want to try and get them all to resolve by the exact same event. It makes your story stronger. You know, if, if everything gets fixed by one action, it makes that action that much more important. You know, Frodo destroys the ring, everything is fixed. Very similar to that in scripture. When Jesus comes back, it all ties together and it all gets fixed and it's all over. So this is important for us to know. When Jesus comes, he's going to establish his kingdom, and Israel will be exalted. It says that Jesus is going to rule over the world from Jerusalem. And you know Jesus is going to have every inch of territory that belongs to him. But it's, it's very important for me to stress here. Abram did not walk through the sacrifice. There was no responsibility upon him to keep this promise. God made the promise. This means that God will fulfill the promise. What does he say there? He says, no for certain. No for certain. Because God took it upon himself to accomplish it. So if I can apply this real quick, this means that we believe the land even to this day is Israel's by decree of the Lord. And you know, this is really not a big deal what I'm about to say, but it rubs Tyler the wrong way. So not the Lord, but I say unto you, it really drives me nuts that we call it Palestine. Because do you know where Palestine is derived from? The word Philistine. 
And it's like, it's not the Philistines, it's theirs. So it drives me crazy. And, I, and that's the modern parlance, so, you know, whatever. But it still makes me crazy because God didn't give that land to the Philistines. He gave it to the Jews. He gave it to his people, the land of Israel. And we support their possession of that land. This does not mean we support everything that their government does because they are not walking in obedience to the Lord right now. But I do know from Genesis 12, 3, the Lord said, whoever blesses you shall be blessed, whoever curses you shall be cursed. So I'm going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we have some connection through some of our missions that we do with the land of Israel, which is a pretty cool thing. And this is why it should have been totally expected that in the 1940s when Israel came back into the land, that's what God had always said. He says it in Deuteronomy, when I drive you out, I will bring you back because I love you and I've made a covenant with you. Which, let me say something that might sound controversial, although I'm not sure why. If Israel were to be driven out of their land again tomorrow, that would not shake what we believe about this. We should expect that they'll return again. Because this is what God has said, and we see it happen like a dozens and dozens of times in the Bible. So it shouldn't make us shaken in our faith or our theology because it's the word that says this to be true. God himself promised. And I believe that when you look at the book of Revelation and some other places, that it's very clear Israel is in their land, and not only in their land, but with a temple. They're worshiping the Lord. That part is not the case. So we love the Lord's people and we love the Lord's land. Because it was through them. Jesus told the woman at the well, what? Salvation is from the Jews. It's not only for the Jews, but it's from them. And Paul says in Romans 11 that the Gentiles should not be puffed up with pride over against them. Abram said, how can I know? And so God let him know. He revealed the plan and he cut a covenant with him that will never be broken. And as I said, we are those who have been blessed by the seed of Abram, Jesus Christ. But let's, let's bring this now to, to our life here. Because according to Hebrews 7.22, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now you read that, Genesis 15. That's a pretty good covenant. I'm going to give you a ton of land. I'm going to bless you. And everybody is going to have to be blessed through you. That's pretty cool. Hebrews says it's better with Jesus. We saw this prophesied in Jeremiah 31. This tells us about the new covenant that we're under Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Sit back for a second and realize how shocking that would have been for them to hear. A new covenant? We've already got the one with Abraham and Moses and David. What do we need a new one for? He says, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. <laughs> though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God promised there would be a new covenant to Jeremiah. And there are four things that make this up that you might have seen as we went through. It would be a covenant not of works, right? Not like the one that I made. There's going to be no contingency. It's going to be me making this covenant. That is going to be written on our hearts. There's going to be a spiritual transformation. This is not just external, follow these rules. God says, I'm going to reach inside you and change your heart. Number three, there would be a knowledge of God. There'd be no need for an intercessor. There'd be no need for a mediator, some priest to go between us and God. And number four, the forgiveness of sins. Not just the covering of sins that the blood of animals provided, forgiveness of sins. That was the new covenant that was promised in the book of Jeremiah. And on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus passed the cup at supper in Luke twenty-two twenty, and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant was established at the cross. And those blessings, not of work, spiritual transformation, knowledge of God, forgiveness of sins, those are available to us. And what's wonderful is that God has not limited them to Israel. God made a covenant with Abram and his children, but the new covenant is open to everybody. The book of Acts wrestles with this, doesn't it? 
hey, Peter, we heard you went and had dinner with a Gentile. Well, yeah, the Lord told me to. And then I was preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden they were filled with the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues and prophesying. I hadn't even baptized them yet. Like, well, I guess Gentiles can be saved. And the rest of that book, they're wrestling back and forth with it. And there's a lot of instruction given to these Jewish Christians to have to accept this. It's the mystery, as Paul says. God has opened up the new covenant to the nations, the Gentiles, because of the seed of Abram. Which means you and I have access to God's promises, number one, not of works. There's nothing we've got to do. Very similar. God went through and provided the sacrifice. Not you, not me. By faith. And it leads to spiritual transformation. God reaches in and turns your heart of stone into a heart of flesh when you put your faith in Christ. And you have a lifelong process of watching you leave your old life behind. We know God by His Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And all of our sins are going to be forgiven on Judgment Day. That's the new covenant that you and I live under. But maybe you're here like Abram and you're saying, but how can I know? How can I know for sure? How can I know that I've been accepted by faith and have the hope of heaven? The Lord has the same answers for you that he had for Abram. When Abram asked the Lord, God, how can I know that you're going to keep your promises? Maybe you're here tonight saying, God, how can I know you're going to keep your promise? He confirms his covenant with us the same way he confirmed his covenant with Abram. Number one, the Lord revealed himself. First thing, Abram said, Lord, how do I know? Abram fell into a deep sleep and had an experience of the presence of God. But for us, in John 1.14, it says that God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. God revealed himself to us. He dwelt among us and showed us what he's like. Number two, the Lord announced what was going to happen. He revealed his plan. God said, this is who I am, Abram, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver your children out of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land. The Lord gave us his word, which reveals the end from the beginning. Revelation 22.6 says, these things have been written that my people may know. Anybody who tells you that prophecy is only there to be an encouragement misses that verse. Says, I've given this to them that they may know that I'm the one that tells you what's going to happen before it happens. And number three, the Lord cut a covenant at his own initiative. He revealed the assurance of salvation to Abram by making a covenant with him. And in the same way, the Lord shed the blood of his son like the Abram shed the blood of those animals that he had to cut in half and separate. Except this time it was the blood of the holy, perfect son of God. And it was the Lord himself that put him to death. Luke twenty two twenty. this is the new covenant in my blood. So the Lord did for us what he did for Abram. How do I know that this is real? You guys, the Lord became a man and dwelt among us. Jesus. The Lord shared his plan. God has shown us the future, and we're watching it unfold right in front of us. And number three, God sent his son to die and then rise from the dead. That's how we know. That's how we know for sure. If God's done all that then surely we can stand in faith and trust him that we've been justified before him, that someday we're going to live forever with him. Don't put your faith and your assurance in the strength of arguments. Well, I found this really great philosophical little twisty tie that helps me understand it. You know, those things are helpful, but don't put your faith on those things because it's a foundation of sand. Well, there's this new scientific or archaeological discovery that really solidifies my faith. What if it comes out tomorrow that that was all wrong? Is your faith going to shatter? Put your faith in what the Lord has done. And don't put your faith, God forbid, in the circumstances around you. Abram looked around and said, there's a lot of other people in this land, and I'm living in a tent. And I don't have any children. God, what's the deal? Abram was looking in the wrong place because God's plan was bigger than that. And in the same way, when we look around and we see our lives and we start to evaluate God's word based on what we see, well, it's a mistake. You trust that God will do all that he promised. That's our assurance. And I know the subject of assurance of salvation is a serious thing. And there's a lot of other things that could be mentioned. We could talk about bearing good fruit. You know, we could talk about holding to the doctrine. Those things are all important. But all of that pales in comparison to the simple faith in what Christ Jesus did at the cross. 
Abram had the memory of the torch and the smoking fire pot passing between the animals that had been torn in pieces to remind him for the rest of his life, God's going to do what he said. And I urge you to cling to your sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose body was ripped open for you, whose blood was shed for you, who was mocked and despised and jeered at for you to cut a new covenant with you. And just as Abram was given a sign, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, the sign of circumcision that was that outward reminder of the covenant God had made, we've been given a sign too. First, there's baptism, which is that moment of entry into the family of God. But there's also the Lord's table, communion, that ongoing reminder. We don't have a lot of rituals, especially as Protestants. But Jesus said, I want you to do this. I want you to share in the bread and the cup. Why? Because the bread and the cup remind us God made a covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. It's open to everyone, and it deals with the root of the problem, not the branches of the trees. So every time you hold that cup in your hand, you should be reminded that your hope is not based on your performance. It's not based on the preponderance of evidence, but it's based on God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who took the initiative to make a covenant with you.